1: Welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm here with my great friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Always good. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the game we reviewed exactly one year ago. Precisely. Then we're going to talk about games we played this week, news and why it really doesn't matter. And then the topic. Restrictive player counts. (laughs) Restrictive player count after our back and forth of. We have several several subtitles. Don't oversell it, Walker. Sorry, sorry, sorry. So, Mark, we are now truly multimedia creators. We now have a stream up of us playing a board game. Isn't that exciting? Lord help us all. Lord help us all. We are multimedia kings.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So this is a preliminary attempt. We had rather serious technical difficulties, but it's there. So, hey, people did ask for it. Uh, people asked us to upload a version after the fact, which we, which we are in the process of doing right now to YouTube. So you can go check out our YouTube channel if you want to. It has all of our past podcasts because, again, people want it there. One of the things that we initially had to learn when becoming, as you say, multimedia kings was that people are going to consume media the way they want to consume media. Some people exclusively consume the podcast through YouTube. That's fine. Fill your boots. We're going to try to facilitate this as much as possible, even though it doesn't make any sense to us.
1: I talked about it at the beginning of the year that I want to give people what they want. So if you guys want more videos and stuff like that, then then like this video or subscribe to the YouTube channel. Do no, no, no,
2: no, no. Do no. something. Well,
1: I don't want to be like one of those sh- thrill but something that indicates that what we're doing.
2: No, 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 no. I am not going to attach my name to any bit of media that includes the the words, please like and subscribe. No, that's not, not going was, to
1: happen. That's not what I meant. I we just, have principles here. I wanted an indicator that people, this is what they want. That's all.
2: If this is something that you'd like to see more of, let us know. How's that? Sure. Sounds good. Oh, I just broke it into full body hives. I know.
1: Don't, it hurt my throat just to say it. Don't, oh, jeez. Don't All
2: that. right. So, the as yet unnamed retrospective intro segment, The Eurus. What did we review last year, Walker? Last
1: year, we reviewed Core Worlds, which is kind of relevant just because we've been talking about libido a lot. Albedo. <laughs> I know. Yes, we've been but the listeners about... might not,
2: Walker.
1: <laughs> and it's very similar. And takes a little fraction of the time, but Core Worlds is Core Worlds, and I think you'll agree that overall it is the more enjoyable game, at least to me it is. It is a fantastic deck building, build up your ground forces and your air forces, conquer planets, build your deck, all-round excellent game.
2: Core Worlds is fantastic. I don't know that... uh, See, see, the strange thing is, formally, Albedo and Core Worlds are almost identical, but in terms of play, they're radically different. So I don't compare them too, too much except conceptually. And I I would never be in a position where I might say, oh, well, we could play Albedo or we could play Core Worlds, because quite frankly, the player counts are, are way different, the playing times are way different... The, the biggest knock against Core Worlds, as we said at the time, is the play length. It's very long, especially for what is essentially a deck builder. But it's absolutely worth the time. I love the first expansion, a little bit less down in the second expansion. And there is going to be a worker placement-ish type game in the same universe by the same designer at some point. They've been talking about this for years, but it'll come when it comes. I'm interested to see more. I wasn't I mean, I'm not hugely enthralled by the Core World setting. But more Core Worlds is good Core Worlds. And there's two expansions for Core Worlds, so there's lots of extra bits that you can
1: gang up on. On to the games that we played this week. We found the board game winner for the most disappointing game of 2020, and that would be Fort by Leader Games. (laughs) This is one of the reasons why I don't like playing tabletop simulator games before I receive the package that I've already paid for. Sure, And then, you know... I'm already disliking a game that I've already paid and not
2: yet opened. You'll have no problem flipping it, I guarantee you. Now, Fort is a
1: remake of a game called SPQF by Grant Roderick, and it's sort of a pseudo-deck building. I say pseudo only because your deck changes so much, you don't really get a chance to actually build it yourself. And I can see what they're going for, and I thought it would play out differently. They want you to be able to get certain cards out and then rely on the other players to get their actions, but it just seemed very chaotic and random to me.
2: It actually reminds me a very slight little bit of Eminent Domain. Eminent Domain tried to do deck building with this sort of follow the leader element of role selection. So it was kind of sort of a little bit deck building, kind of sort of a little bit glory to Rome. And in the case of Fort, I really think what you have here is the effectiveness of what a change in artist could do. I honestly think that the overwhelming majority of the attention that Fort is getting is by virtue of the work of Kyle Farron, Kyle Farron being the same artist who does, uh, who uh, illustrated both Fort and Root. And I think that it's the kind of halo effect of Root from the same publisher and with the same artist. That's really attaching to it. Grant Rodiak in the past has done cry havoc, which I did not like at all. And which, but which, which got some success and, And SBQF was available for several years in a variety of obscure formats, mostly print and play. And I mean, I I wouldn't say that I was disappointed because I didn't really have any expectations. Once I realized this by Grant Rodiak and when when I read about how it works, there are a number of possible virtues to Fort that I don't think really manifest. One of them is this notion that any card you don't play in your turn is potentially poachable by everybody else. It's a card that's, whenever it's your turn to take a card, to purchase a card, quote-unquote, because there's no currency, you can take any card that somebody else didn't use on their last turn. Well, in effect, what that does is it just encourages you to just play all your cards whenever you can, which means there's not really much hand management. You just pick the biggest combo and try to go for that. Now, granted, there's some deck purchase decisions that can lead you down there, and that's potentially interesting. The other element is whether there's some notion of playing a role and then your opponents can take better advantage of it than you could, or by being able to capitalize on an opponent's play, which is the converse of that, neither of which I think really manifests, because again, if you can follow, you probably should. If you can't, you won't. And if I'm playing a card, I have no basis to realistically infer whether or not an opponent is going to be able to follow by, by virtue of, of having a card. Now, maybe if I were very carefully scrutinizing every card acquisition they ever made, I might be able to say, ah, oh, well, you know, I happen to know that Walker's deck is 60% this suit, so he's more likely to be able to... F-. Honestly, no. Besides which, again, if I'm sitting on a combo that'll let me play four of my cards, I don't care if anyone follows me because I'd be silly to then choose the weaker one. A number of people who played commented that they felt that they didn't really have many decisions over the course of playing the game, and I, for one, concur. I don't think it was a
1: complete loss. It just wasn't it didn't play the way I wanted to. It had this cool lookout where you're you know tucking cards under your board to give you, you know symbols whenever you want, but I didn't even didn't even find that those ever triggered. Like I never got those to come off again. Once I got them under there, I never
2: got that combo to go off. I used it exclusively to bury cards so that that would score for me at the end of the game so that other people couldn't poach them. So it worked out. Yeah, and
1: like I said, the art does take it a little far away. I'm wondering if this is just a really nice gateway game. You know what I mean? It's
2: a, it'd be a really great game to introduce to
1: children. You
2: know, you're oh, building I forts, would... you're playing pizza, and there's toys. And there I wouldn't be... want to show this to new gamers at all. Just the card flow—it's not particularly complicated, but it's a little bit to get wrap your head around. It's like, all right, first you play your cards, and then cards you don't play sit out here. And then other people might take them, but then at the start of your turn, they go over here. And cards can be over here, but there's a cap to that. Goods can be over here, or they can be over here, but there's a cap to that, too. And getting them back and forth is a little tricky. I would, uh, It's not an overly complicated game, but I wouldn't cu- classify it as an intro game by any stretch of the imagination. I suppose. The only area where I was disappointed, actually, and this was a legitimate case of disappointment, was... I wanted more art. I wanted more instances of delightful Kyle Ferron art. There are duplicates in the deck, I found that crushingly disappointing. Because every card is a friend. It's a, a little childhood figure that might help you build your fort out of pizza and toys. I don't think that's a good idea. Neither pizza nor toys are traditionally load bearing, but what have you. And when I when I started encountering duplicates, I was I was very disappointed.
1: And that is Fort by Leader Games and Grant Rodiak.
2: On the topic of trying games on Tabletop Simulator before you might actually give money to them, a friend from Boston wanted to try Ascension Tactics, the miniatures deck building game, and I had expressed interest in the past. So we, just before the Kickstarter ended, we finally made the push and and, and tried it because, again, my threshold for playing digitally is is very high now because I, I'd rather not. I I still hate Tabletop Simulator. And I have to say that I'm very, very glad that I tried it because uh, it made me appreciate Shards of Infinity all the more. Because all the board play elements in Ascension Tactics did not feel cohesive to me at all. They didn't strike me as compelling or interesting. They just struck me as overhead for the sake of overhead because a bad miniature skirmish game... It involves one where you're just tediously moving your figures along, and maybe if the miniatures aren't well implemented, the stat lines are a little bit obscure. It's like, wait, how much attack does this guy again? Okay, this, this corresponds to that card. And despite the fact that Ascension Tactics is a very, very quick and very streamlined game, that's mostly what the board added to it. And more and more, I'm appreciating games... Either like through the ages that do away with boards entirely, or like Death May Die or Claustrophobia that say, let's make the board as abstracted as possible and have a few spaces as possible. Because in the case of Ascension Tactics, I honestly felt that compared to Shards of Infinity, where I play a character who generates combat value and then I decide who the target is, that would have been preferable. Trying to track the correspondence between the various stats, between the various figures, didn't really add much. And honestly, it didn't really add to the deck building to a tremendous amount. Instead of using currency to generate attack, you're generating currency to activate miniatures, which might then generate attack. It didn't really add much. I would would infinitely rather play Justin Gary's previous skirmish game, namely the World of Warcraft collectible miniatures game, or I would just rather play one of the realms games... Which, admittedly, that that seems a bit unfair because the Realms games are ripping off Ascension, right? Ascension came on and said, let's have a rotating market, but the Realms games looked at it and said, well, instead of generating two different types of currency and being at the mercy of what the market has for you, oh, I generated a lot of combat this round, but there are no monsters to kill in the market this round. Oh, well, sucks to be me. I guess I'll just beat up some cultists. They said, what if we generated combat and then had it be, you know, player interaction, you can use it to knock out enemy champions or, or, or advance your victory conditions. That, I thought, was a great advance. And the Ascension Tactics game doesn't suffer from the same problem that Ascension does, namely of of the market sometimes having creatures or cards to purchase when you need one or the other but again the the board play didn't add anything to me so given that it adds considerably the cost and the upkeep and indeed some of the mental effort of tracking various stats i am very very happy to stick with my preferred realms derivative which is not even a realms game but instead is shards of infinity so things come full circle at the end of the day and that was my experience with ascension tactics the miniatures deck building game so more online stuff you and
1: i played a game of voyages of marco polo I'm finding I just enjoy it more and more every time I play it. The way the board changes every time and the completely broken player characters that you play and how you analyze the board at the beginning of the game and and change your strategy every time. It really takes you out of this, you know, do the same thing every time, except for some of the characters. Some of the characters sometimes you're a little bit forced into a, a particular path, but depending on how the board's laid out, there's definitely different ways you can manipulate the board and play Voyages of Marco Polo. I'm really hoping that Board Game Arena puts the expansion on soon because i I don't th- I don't remember how many times we played. It. I think if we only got to play it twice. I definitely want to play it more. And Marco Polo is by Z-Man Games. Put out by Simone
2: Luciani and Danielle Tetsini. Simone and Daniele. Thank you. Yes, Marco Polo is great. I wish they would put up at least more of the characters. Yeah, the little mini expansion with the new special characters would be cool. Absolutely. On the topic of expansions, see how we're just flowing naturally here? uh... I got to try the Endeavor expansion, which is called Endeavor Age of Expansion. And Endeavor originally published more than 10 years ago and then came back in a beautiful edition by Burnt Island Games, which is definitely a company that, although I don't like all their games, they definitely know how to produce a very, very nice looking box. And the expansion for Endeavor includes a new set of buildings. And a new set of cards, and you can mix and match those. You can play with the new buildings, the new cards, and the new buildings, the old cards, etc. And this is on top of the modular exploits that the Endeavor Age of Sail version introduced. I was playing with new players, so I did not include any exploits, but I did include the new buildings because they don't know the difference. It's either one set of buildings or another set of buildings. So I do like it when expansions are like that, you that you can easily introduce them to new to new players and give them a sense that there's a lot of variety involved, but you don't have to labor them with a whole bunch of overhead. Endeavor is such a clean game, and it was really one of the first games to... It was kind of a little bit ahead of, of the curve of tracks on tracks on tracks. It's mostly about manipulating tracks, but not in a way that is as overburdened or tedious as I find a lot of other track-based games like Terra Mystica or Ortsulkin or, or things like that. But it's, it's a lovely little game of exploiting the new world and uh, doing terrible, terrible, terrible things to people who are not white. And uh, nonetheless, it was one of the early games... ...to deal with slavery in any reasonable way, which is in a somewhat considered way. And sure enough, in our game, I needed a little bit of a boost from labor that, shall we say, was not entirely voluntary or entirely remunerated. And uh, slavery was abolished about half a turn later. It was (laughs) very swift, a very... So I was punished almost immediately for dabbling in the slave trade... Endeavor is very much the poster child for how to do colonialism well in the context of Eurogames. And that was manifested, as I say, roughly a 10-minute turnaround. So I really like the new buildings. I, As I say, it offers a little bit of variety without additional rules overhead. I've not tried the new cards, and I've only played with exploits once. I, I played with exploits with people who had already played the game before, and I didn't really feel it added a huge amount. But I am curious, because there's a lot of them, and a lot of thought seems to have been put in a lot of the exploits. So I'd like to have a little bit more experience with that. Everybody that I showed Endeavor 2 enjoyed it a great deal, especially because it was, uh, again, so approachable, and the systems are... are very, very streamlined, and so I would like to get more experience with my copy of Endeavor involved, with or without any expansion elements, and that was Endeavor Age of Expansion.
1: Another game that came on to Board Game Arena this week is a game called Turn the Tide, and first we have to have a a little debate on what what a trick taking game is cuz right. i i don't i don't agree with what they say that some of these trick taking games are in me trick taking game has to involve suits and there has to be a leader i disagree it, it can't just be high card wins high card wins is is war not <laughs> trick taking <laughs> games trick taking games is a very you know thought process where you think okay i got to clean this guy guy's hand of a certain suit or you think about it i disagree su- i think i think you can have a trick taking game without suits no
2: I no? I don't right. think
1: so. All right, fair enough. I just think it takes too much out of it, and after that, it's just war. High what, card wins.
2: You can pref- you can prefer games with suits. No, I
1: just, That's I, just, I just think that makes it a trick-taking game. High card wins is what just makes war.
2: It, I I disagree. What makes a trick-taking game a trick-taking game is that there's a trick. That's what makes it a trick-taking what, game. What? High card wins? Yeah. Okay, so it's war. War, uh, if you want to call a war a trick-taking game, sure. Let's add a corollary, right? If we introduce suits to war... That doesn't make it any more of a trick-taking game. If I declare that in war, spades always beat hearts, which always beat clubs, which always beat diamonds. There we go. We have a trump ordering. Does that make it more of a trick-taking game for you? 100%. <laughs> All right, fine. <laughs> Whatever, because man. Because it puts a whole new strategy of, of suits in it. There's still no strategy. It's still war. It's still just you flip up a card.
1: Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> I see. oh I, I, if you're just taking off the top. I suppose, yeah. Okay. That being said. I'm trying to, I want to explain this game verbally without people actually showing the cards because it is a little it, tricky. It's not, it a huge, <laughs> it's not as though it has a huge, it's not as though it has a huge, amount of but what it does is, is very interesting. I thought because such for, for such a simple game, it brings something new and interesting to the table. So there's a deck of 60 cards numbered one through 60, and they're dealt out to all the players at the beginning of the game. And these are the decks that you're going to use for the whole game. It's going to go around the table the whole time. Like, everyone's got to get a chance to use each of these decks. And on these cards, there's also symbols that sort of rate the deck. Sort of depending on the numbers that you got, it's going to tell you how difficult it is for you to win with that particular deck that you got. And you put those counters out in front of you.
2: So every every stack, every hand, if you will, you have been calling it a deck, but it's officially a hand. That's right. Comes with its own handicap. Correct. Got it. And then there's another deck of numbers. It goes through 1 to
1: twelve. And at the beginning of a hand, you're going to flip up two of these cards, and everyone's going to put a card face down in front of them, and that's the card they're going to play. And then you flip up, and whoever has the highest card will get the lowest number that's out there, because you want the lowest number, and the second highest card will get the second number. And then you assess the table. Whoever has the highest one of these 1 through 12 cards loses one of their handicap tokens.
2: I see. Okay. Okay. And the handicap tokens is what you're going to score at the end of the round. I will say, just for the pedants out there, some pedants will insist that if it's simultaneous play that it can't be a trick-taking game, that trick-taking must necessarily be in some sort of sequential order. Well,
1: that was the other part of it, too, right? Where I didn't understand, where you can't really manipulate the board by what you play, so I didn't think... Yeah, anyway. That being said, I just thought it was very interesting, the fact that they established the decks at the beginning. Sure. And this, this, this card play, because... Sometimes you can go through the other thing and, and not win anything, which would be essentially the best because then you'll never picking up one of these numbers. So right. you'll never be assessed. Right? So you always want to go void. You always want to go void if you can. But then the other thing is you can sort of look at the tables like, oh, he just grabbed a 12. He's definitely going to want to change. You know, it comes up, what, like, you know, maybe three, eight. Is the next two cards, and like he's going to go heavy on this next one because he's going to try to get rid of that twelve. So you can sort of like try to get rid of some of your cards that you don't want while these guys bid super high, or
2: you can. So like, coming, so coming in second is the worst possible yes. outcome. Okay, I mean, like in a five-player game, you know,
1: you know <laughs> coming in second is the worst you could possibly do. I see. Very interesting game called Turn the Tide, and it's on. I Mark, I keep going to the the, the post office, my mailbox. I'm looking. For the, the check from Board Game Arena, but it, it's never there. Anyway, it's another. It's a new game on, on Board we're Game to, we're Arena. We're supposed to be pretend
2: to be unbiased here, Walker.
1: I know. I'm just kidding. I'm sure they know I'm kidding.
2: This is another game by Stefan Dora. I, I I looked I looked into it after you mentioned it. And Stefan Dora, of course, is responsible for a lot of really minimalistic, really quality fillers. Among them, for sale.
1: Yeah, I was told to play. I played Six Nymph at the same time because I was told that they were similar. I didn't know. Oh, find Six them, Nymph is awful. I've, I found. Yeah, it's by a, a designer that I've never heard of before. He, he's done some games. <laughs> I, I've heard he's done a few things, but
2: I. Say the Nymph
1: Walker. Game Kramer, yeah. I believe, is the person that did Six Nymph. And man, oh man, there's some, some people say, oh, you know, don't play it. It's random. And some people try to defend it.
2: In my opinion, it's completely random. Uh, look, there are some people who defend Six Nymph. It won the DSP. The year that it came out, won the Deutscher Spielpress, (laughs) the year that it was released, which makes no sense to me. I have a special place. When I really hate a game, when I think it's really, really, really bad, and I realize this is a jerk thing to do. I don't defend it. This is usually when I'm in a terrible mood and I'm, I'm being subjected to a game that I think is so stupid. I start playing randomly, literally. And I started playing Six Nymph randomly, and I won. I was just, I literally, even when when I was involved in plays that were grotesquely stupid, like, oh, playing this card automatically makes me lose points. And there was no choice involved. Oh, well, I'm playing randomly. There we go. I would just shuffle my hand, pull a random card off the deck. I still won. That, to me, I think, at least says something. I'm not going to dismiss the entire game as necessarily random, but, oh, jeez. Both these games
1: are published
2: by Amigo. That is Turn the Tide and Six Nimpt So following up on my experience of colonizing the rest of the world in Endeavor, I then played Spirit Island. And this is, of course, very relevant because... Eric Royce, the designer of spirit Island talks about how it was during a game of endeavor. He thinks it was endeavor or something like endeavor where the seeds of the idea of spirit Island first came root, where he said, I wonder how the people in these territories feel about what we're doing. (laughs) And so spirit Island, of course, uh, is the one that inverts the colonialist narrative and puts it on its head. And we play as the people being colonized. Sorry, we don't play as the people being colonized, but we're more on their side than we are with the colonists. So it inverts that narrative a little bit. And then it inverts a whole bunch of other narratives as well. Uh, I really think it's a shame, actually, that in Spirit Island, very much like in Sterile Confluence, a lot of the quality background world building is not immediately accessible. Like Sitting down and talking with Eric Royce, which I did for an interview in one of the early days of Swagback when we thought that interviews were a good idea. Not that he wasn't a great inter- interviewee. I'm not a very good interviewer. Uh, he has endless interesting things to say about the Dahan and their culture and how they view the spirits and how the, view it's, the spirits view each other. Endlessly fascinating. Great game of Spirit Island. I mention it also to stress the great tragedy that has befallen Canadians. Whereas Americans are receiving their copies of Jagged Earth, the latest expansion as we speak, Canadians' copies are not yet at port because they're all being sent to the UK, and it's going to take two to three months to so much as ship out those copies. I've complained about this at length on Pledge of Indifference. I wish to repeat it now, but there is good news. There's hope in the land of swag because I have found an American hookup. Woogie is going to be sending us a copy of Jagged Earth early, so I do not have to wait with the rest of my country members. We'll be getting Jagged Earth sooner rather than later, and I cannot wait to explore all the new spirits and read all the new lore and try all the new powers and such. So that is our further experience. It was was like an entire afternoon of colonization and then anti-colonization. It was wonderful. Nice balance. Nice bookends. Once again, I've been playing
1: lots of Yokohama. I'm sure everyone's tired of me talking about it. It's a game by Tasty Minstrel Games, put out by Hisashi Hayashi. The only reason I want to bring it up today, Mark, is when I thought about it, it has an odd end game condition. For gamers, it's probably not so much a big thing, but when the the latest game I played, it was so short, it just made me think about it for a second. It came up as little notifications, hey, this is your last turn, and I was like... (laughs) but we just started. So there's five of them. If you believe it or not, there's five different end conditions for Yokohama. And if you hit any of them, the game ends, there's trading houses on your little tableau. If you put, if anyone puts all of those out or if anyone puts out all the shops or the order deck goes empty and there's two boards on, on the player, on the, on the table. And if a certain number of tokens get put on those, the church board or the custom boards, that also ends, so five different ways, not a big deal, but compared to other games, it's kind of kind of crazy when you think about it. Which one triggered the end game this time? This one, someone had uh, hit hard on the customs board, and that ended the game very quickly. It was still fun. I, <laughs> every time I play Yokohama, I try something different, and I'm enjoying it every time.
2: I should try it again. I, I played it once, I enjoyed it. I didn't think it was anything particular to write home about, but I would gladly try it again.
1: I think the more you play it, the more the blocking comes into play, and not just not just blocking with uh, your your leader, but blocking with your with your tokens and and sort of seeing where people are building up and just hitting that space It's like, oh, I'm not sure exactly what I want to do this turn, but I want to build up a little here and a little here. Right. And it's like they've got three tokens over there. I'll just plant myself over there this turn, just you know, because I'm not quite sure where I want to go this turn. So anyway, stuff like that. Really enjoy.
2: Yokohama. Played a game of Sonora, Sonora being the flick and right game, which thereby makes it vastly better than roll-and-write games, because I would rather flick than roll any day of the week. And I played it with two. I played it with Dr. Contra, and I have to say with two, it became vastly more controllable. You've commented that one of your, one of the things you don't like about Sonora, in addition to the fact that you can't just flick something as hard as you possibly can, walk or smash, that you felt it was a little chaotic and it was almost impossible to get anything to sit on a bonus space, which is absolutely fair. But with two players, suddenly, not just the bonus spaces become crucially important, but who is in what sector. And making sure that your disc ends up in a certain sector or that your opponent do- a disc doesn't end up in another sector, because there's less information to track, it becomes much, much more parsable, and you know a little bit more about what your opponent's board is doing. And that element I found much, much to be preferred. Now, I have to say that the sort of scoring puzzles that are at the heart of Sonora, very much like any uh, flick-and-write or roll-and-write, well, there's only really one flick and in and that's Sonora... It's becoming a little bit repetitive the way that I kind of expected it to be. Namely, you have these four different scoring conditions, and they're all these different little mini-puzzles. But they all kind of can progress along the same paths. So they're clever, and they're cute, and they're fun, and they offer you variety. But the variety is mostly of the width variety, not the depth variety. Which is fine. I've found this to be true of pretty much all games with similar kinds of scoring metrics. And Sonora is still very engaging, especially by virtue of how nice and colorful all the designs are, and you're not just filling out a matrix of numbers like you would in any of the clever games, and you're not involved in redlining in a contemptible social experiment like you are in Welcome 2 or games like that. But instead, you have these lovely little stylized desert scenes, essentially, and you get to flick things, which is always nice. And so I think Sonora's is going to have a better shelf life than most games of its ilk, but it is starting to feel a little bit samey after having played about half a dozen times. Somebody on the guild actually asked, do you think Sonora is going to hold up to 100 plays? And the general consensus was no, <laughs> absolutely not. 100 plays is a tall ask for any game to do. And especially for something like Sonora. Also, Sonora has been out for five hot seconds, so I don't know that many people would be in a position to comment. If you get to half of that
1: with any game, you've gotten your money's worth. Absolutely.
2: Oh, well, money's worth. Geez, you barely need that many as far as... No, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, still enjoying Sonora, and I'm going to keep playing it. I'm just saying that I think I might be seeing the end of it. So I think that it's going to be one of those games that's good for about 10-ish plays. Maybe probably not past that, but I'm hardly shocked. And so, although it definitely, the flicking definitely improves on the standard formula, it doesn't overcome the formula's sense of sameness of filling out a scoring matrix roughly similar ways every time. And so, that is my view on Sonora.
1: Nice.
2: And finally, for me,
1: I played a super long game of Eclipse.
2: Yeah, it took forever. Yeah. We set up, so we started setting up, what, around 610, I think? I think so. We set up all the pieces and we finished it around 645, I think. Yes. It was, I mean, oh, jeez. Awful. Those uh, 35 35 minutes. For an Eclipse game? Yeah. That's ridiculous. We didn't actually finish. We we, we didn't even finish the first round. We were mostly finished the first round. Play got interrupted. Yes. (laughs) Unfortunate.
1: And those were the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't
2: matter. So, Dune. 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 That's all I have to say. Apparently, that's all you need now. Yeah, apparently, that's all you need. Well, yeah. look, here's the thing. If you really like Dune, first of all, my sympathies. But secondly, the license was fallow for so long due to, look, I, as to whether or not it was a good call or a bad call, who's responsible, whatever. But now, the floodgates have opened, thanks in part to Denis Villeneuve, French-Canadian filmmaker, maker of, maker of fabulous films. Uh, who's going to be making the new Dune movie. I have no opinion on the new Dune, new Dune movie. I'm firmly of the opinion that if you have a series of movies and one of them has Sting and the others don't, the one with Sting is obviously better than the ones without. But, setting all that aside, <laughs> I don't really have any strong attachments to any of the anything of the Dune property. But, uh, the Dune board game's been reprinted very shortly thereafter. There was an expansion that, that got introduced that was not available in the previous version. Now there's going to be a... Dune Imperium game that has been sublicensed to somebody else, so it's not even Gelforce 9, and they say it's going to be worker placement with deck building, and we don't really know anything else about it. So that's Dune Imperium.
1: Let's hope that it has movie art on the cards. That would be great.
2: Oh, wow. Oh, that would be so awful. (laughs) (laughs) Please no. Everyone's waiting for title blades,
1: Mark. I've got some news. By everyone, you mean Michael Walker? Yes. You see, the forklift... Took the pallet to 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 Bay A instead of Bay B. Okay, right. So now it's going to be two weeks later than they said. Did this, it get accidentally was, shipped to like Bangkok this, this instead was, of this was St. after Louis? last week's delay where the guy that was wrapping the pallet stubbed his toe. Okay, so that was another two weeks delay. Sure. So I'm sure by 2022 we'll finally
2: get tidal Blade. How many times do I have to tell you, Walker? The soonest that any human being should legitimately get hyped about an incoming Kickstarter project is when you have the shipping notification. Not the address confirmation stage, not when it's on the boat, not when it's hit port. Shipping confirmation. I think that's even too soon. I wait for the knock on the door. That's legitimate. Well, that's what you say. And yet I have to care about title blades every week. Yeah, but I think it's just funny how every week there's another reason why. Oh, sure. An entirely unforeseeable, unprecedented delay, much like Chinese New Year. So there's going to be a third printing of Assault on Doomrock. Assault on Doomrock, the most excellent co-op kind of sort of tactical combat thing with vague elements of satire of of fantasy adventure. One of my favorite co-op games. Certainly one of my favorite adventure games, if not my favorite adventure game. Good news and bad news. The good news is it's already been funded, and it's going to have new classes and new cards and even a new activation system for the monsters. Bad news is, hope you can read Polish, because if you can't, you can't have it only in Polish, is the plan. They've officially said that at present there is no plan to release any of the stuff in English. I hope that that is false and or that they change their mind because I adore Assault and Doomrock. I would love to get my hands on any new content. I don't think that any of it needs to be fixed, but I'd be certainly willing to try any of the changes because I have a great faith in the design team. And that is the good news, bad news I have at Assault and Doomrock. I don't even know what to say. Look, I, look at it, I try to look at it this way. In all sincerity, the amount of media that I, as an English native speaker, don't have access to is a tiny, 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 tiny percentage. And so as a contribution to stuff that I can't get because I speak English, I'm willing to take it on the chin every once in a while (laughs) because the rest of the time we're spoiled. Everything gets an English translation. Everything. It's true. Guess what, Mark? There's going to be yet another
1: version of Blood Bowl coming out. I I couldn't believe it myself. This is like Edition 10. Sure. There
2: was the other things? We had. This, to... include, this, is an, this is another version of Core Blood Bowl. Yeah. believe I'm telling you, It's true. Well, it's been four whole years. GW I, needs to I, sell a new base set, I right? Know, right? Papa's got to get a taste. So here's... Is Blood Bowl a miniatures
1: game or a board game? That's a good question. Depends on who you ask. Because we talked about the trick-taking thing. Well, I'm, what, what <laughs> well I'm, that's different. What I'm just trying to get to is the fact that has there any, ever been any other board game, if we're going to consider a board game, that's had, like... Forty-seven editions.
2: <laughs> I don't know. Blood Bowl may be right up there in terms of sheer numbers of editions. Sadly, I, I just write about the death of Guild Ball. I've never played Guild Ball, but I'm very much in favor of people who are not Games Workshop being successful in the miniatures field. And unfortunately, there's going to be no more Guild Ball. That's unfortunate. It is. It is unfortunate. We have. We have a set of Guild Ball. We could give it a try if we wanted to. We should. I remember being like, it's a future. It's more futuristic no. type. Is that not Guild Ball? No. That's Dreadball.
1: Oh. <laughs> Dreadball
2: Lord. is Mantic's sci-fi kind of thing okay. that's clearly riffing gotcha. on Blood Bowl. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Guild Ball is the also sort of fantasy, but much more representative and a much better cast that was put out until recently. Gotcha. I have no idea how I got them confused. A silly walkers. Um, <laughs>
1: anyway, I did look into this just because the only way I play Blood Bowl now is online. There's like three or four great computer adaptations of it mm-hmm. that just track everything for you. And I look back into it. There's a website called fumble and we yes. played a million games. I of remember World fumble. fumble and it's still going strong, Mark. It's still there. It's like completely updated. It looks super shiny. I didn't like go in, in, but I mean, I, you know, browse through the website a bit and I'm definitely interested in going back and seeing, you know, how, uh, you know how the remember how the field used to be like gray, and I'm really interested to see you know what the new how they they revamped it, and that's Fumble. Check it out, Fumble.com,
2: spelled F U M B B L. dot com. Yes, I was about to ask you to spell it because I I didn't remember how Fumble was spelled. I just remembered it was not spelled the way we would spell it in English. News from Pandasaurus. Pandasaurus has, Games has decided they have a lane as you might imagine from their company name called Pandasaurus. They were the ones who put out Dinosaur Island. They're going to be putting out a game... I, I just love the title. This is not quite at the level of Starship Samurai, but it's, it's, it's definitely a great title, and the title is God's Love Dinosaurs. The theme of the game is you are a deity, and... All you're interested in doing is creating an ecosystem that will support the largest number of dinosaurs possible. You don't care about mammals, except insofar as they're dinosaur food. You don't care about flora, except insofar as it's dinosaur food. That's all you care about. And so you have to manage the ecosystem so that it receives enough of an equilibrium so that it can support the largest number of dinosaurs. Too many mammals, and that's bad because... You don't care about mammals. Too few mammals, and your dinosaurs will starve, and that's bad. So, <laughs> I I appreciate the single mindedness of it all, <laughs> and I just love the title. So, I'm probably going to check it out when it gets released. I'm 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 charmed. What else can I say? And lastly, for me, Ashes
1: Reborn. I'm bringing this only up because it has a weird format, Mark, where they said, okay, we're we're going to do another edition of Ashes, but you have to subscribe to it. And as soon as we get to a thousand subscribers, then we'll, you know, start issuing stuff. They've gotten to their thousand, so it's no problem. They're going to reissue this package. They'll bring everything up to date, and then down the road somewhere, then they'll finally bring out a new base box. So I, it just seems I've never th- I've never heard of any other system doing this before. Well,
2: we've talked in the past about how difficult it is to bust into the. <sighs> It doesn't matter whether you want to call it a living card game or an expandable card game, any anything that doesn't have blind buys but has regular set releases, it's a tough market to bust into, and I, th- I have to think that that's one of the reasons why Plat Hat got out. So they sold it to Team Covenant, and Team Covenant is now going to be responsible for it. Look, it's it it seems as reasonable to me of having a subscription model as say launching a Kickstarter. If anything, it seems more more sustainable. So good luck to them. And that is the news, and why it doesn't matter. On to our topic for this week, which is restrictive player counts. Or, I thought I told you not to bring your friend. Or, you're bailing now? Or, I'll just sit out and teach. Or, I wonder if that bully who never showers is free. Or, oh great, she brought her boyfriend again. All great excuses.
1: I'm just wondering if this is going to break down... I have it broken down into two parts. Okay. Right, is it A, the publisher or designer caved in that <laughs> you know to the market and open it opened up the player count or the designer held ground or the publisher realized held their ground held their ground or the publisher realized the game only works at a certain player count or the game degrades too badly if you change the player count
2: well okay but look to my mind when we're talking about restrictive player counts, I'm just I, I'm, I'm thinking of games where there's a very very specific number perhaps only a single number. Where it yes. works. And in other numbers, it doesn't work now. But keep in mind, there are lots of games that lie on their box, but it doesn't mean that the player count is incredibly
1: restrictive. No, and that's what I have here. Is this is more than just what does this game play best at. Exactly. This is right. games exactly. that, that need an exact number in order to be played.
2: Right. But what I'm saying is, is that you're, you're quite reasonable mentioning of mendacity on the part of either publishers or sometimes even designers. Oh, yeah, you can play my game with two or three or whatever. Sometimes there are games with flexible player counts, or at least reasonably flexible player counts, where there's a lot. For example, uh, one thing that comes to mind is a game that is almost makes the list, but doesn't quite, which is to say Senji. Senji is one of my favorite games. Senji, there are some people who say that Senji only works with six. I think they're wrong. I think Senji works fine with five. I think it works tolerably with four. But on the box, it says you can play with three, which is, I think, no. That is, that is an absolute lie. So you have a game that's at least mildly flexible with respect to player count, but still lies on the box. Same thing with Al Grande. There are some people who say that El Grande only works to five. I'm not one of those people. I at least concede that that's a little more true than the lie about Senji. But again, the box for El Grande says you can play with two or three, and that, I think, is ridiculous falsehood.
1: I was just thinking more of games like Rebellion or War of the Ring, where it is a two-player game. Oh, the Tacton on team game. Yeah, but they suit on and say, oh, no, but you can play it with you know four, you know, but you just share the... Sure. And the other thing I was thinking about, I think you, did you play Versailles 1919 solo? I did. And How did that play? It was interesting. I, I just cannot see it. I looked it up and it says one to four. And
2: I think the only way I'd ever play that game is with the full four. So I played it with three and I felt that it was significantly less good than with four. Uh, but the solo game is surprisingly engaging. I, I would never play it with two. Uh, we didn't try it with two, full full disclosure, with respect to, to, to our review of Versailles. So again, Versailles doesn't quite make the cut. The solo game is really neat in that you're trying to maintain balance with respect to all these powers. And so you have to be very, very careful about what you win and when. Now, yes, you lose all the negotiation, but... It nonetheless worked shockingly well, because again, calling back to our topic about solo games, for me, a solo game to work, it has to be, it has to feel a little bit like the normal game, and it can't have a, an incredibly complicated AI system where I feel like I'm managing an entire new game just to ar- arbitrate the AI. And the, the Versailles 1919 AI is so incredibly quick and clean uh, that it was it was very charming.
1: I'm just going to go over this one part that I have here just because that covers both, right? I just have a bunch of different types of games that would require specific player counts. Like Versailles 1919, it's a historical game. Lots of other historical games have like fixed sides in them, right? So you need just a particular player count. Or like you already said, there's a lot of negotiation in Versailles. Negotiation games tend to need more players than just two or three.
2: Sure, but they they can be very flexible. For example, Serial Confluence Trading and Negotiation the Elysian Quadrant. I've played very, very satisfying four-player games, and then it goes all the way up from there. So there's a lot of flexibility there. True. I mean, not less than
1: that, though. I mean, same with auction games. You need, you know, a certain threshold before
2: it doesn't become viable. I disagree. So there's Raw, my favorite auction game. It, uh, Again, there are some people who claim that Raw is only good with three. I think that's wrong. I think Raw scales actually very, very well from two to five. Raw at two works really well. There are even two-player auction games that are dedicated two-player auction games that work really well. For okay. example, Blue Moon. Yeah, which... dedicated, dedicated ones, for sure. Sure. I'm sure. Just saying mostly,
1: you know, strict au- auction games usually tend to do better when there's more than two players.
2: Uh, generally, yeah, but I don't think they fall into the... Uh, a lot of auction games don't tend to be very restrictive. For example, Medici uh, scales very well. Uh, even QE scales very well. Uh, for Sale scales very no, well. No, I'm not I saying that... Say, what are you um,
1: saying, Walker? What I'm saying is that these are categories in which a
2: usually a higher player count. Why they're not two-player games. Name me an auction game that you think falls under the topic of re- I don't restrictive have player any, counts. I don't
1: have any specific games. I,
2: take your, I, I accept I just, your apology. I just
1: came up with these very quickly.
2: Party games tend to,
1: tend to do well with more than two players. Trick-taking games. This is where I got back to my, yes. my initial statement with trick-taking games even there's a, the the fox series that came out there they are definitely two player games but but before that you definitely need needed more than two players to play trick taking
2: games yes and they tend to be very very specific you play bridge with four players that yes. is the number of people you play bridge with in yes. fact a lot of trick taking games especially well so there are the partnership ones obviously the partnership ones you tend to play with four i know of a couple that went up to six which is a little bit weird, but a lot of trick-taking games Yeah, I have Bridge and Euchre on my
1: list as four-player only.
2: Right. Uh, my favorite trick-taking game, which is Vastikt by Karl-Heinz Schmiel, that was also pretty much only playable with four. And then
1: there's the hidden role. I was going to put hidden role on this list, but then I realized we've been playing Inhuman Conditions, and that's an actual two-player hidden role game. <laughs> yes. So it also breaks the mold. But usually, in general, hidden role games do better, much better than... When there's more than two players.
2: Sure. But again, there's a certain degree of flexibility. One of the things that I like about the Resistance is I, I will happily play the Resistance at any player count, allow me to stress. There's some people who will only play it at seven or more. But even within that that band, I don't – there are some people – actually, I, sh- I should correct myself. There are some people who insist the Resistance should only be played with seven. I think that's a little bit restrictive. But. Like I said, these are the things that affect sure
1: what player counts might be. Sure. All right, and then the rest of all, all I have are actual games that
2: have set numbers of players. Sure. So so circling back to historical games that, that you mentioned, a lot of them for me are what I would call appointment games. You don't just pull them off of your shelf or what have you because the right number of people are around. I'm thinking of things like Triumph and Tragedy or things like Virgin Queen or Here I Stand or things like that. These are games that you, you make plans to do when you get everybody together. Allow me to tell you my tale of O with respect to Virgin Queen. I've never played Virgin Queen. I've played Here I Stand. We had gotten together to play Virgin Queen. Everyone had agreed. Somebody bailed 10 minutes before the game was supposed to start. It's a six-player game. So they had five people show up for an all-day game. I don't have a a game for five players that would last that period that would satisfy everybody. It was terrible, and I wept. And the fact that I still speak to this individual shows you how kind and tolerant I am. A story somewhat like that is Diplomacy. It's
1: it's Absolutely. it's well played with seven. And much more games, you set up the whole board. So you really have to have all the players there. But we sometimes what we did in Diplomacy, if we didn't have exactly, we only had six. And this happened a couple of times. One, Like you said, one person bailed. Is that everyone would write orders for the person that wasn't there. And then we'd ram- randomly pick <laughs> someone's order. And that's what they would do every turn. It was so
2: much fun. Oh wow, that sounds hilarious. And I'm sure so I'm sure that the diplomacy purists, if any of them listen to our show, are just squirming I in know, agony. Right? Which makes it that
1: much <laughs> which better. Which makes it that
2: much better. Uh, but then of course there are lighter games like all the Quartermaster General games are a very specific player count, but it's a series, so it's fine. If you feel like playing a quartermaster general game, there are excellent options for four to six, and then there's the option for three, which you shouldn't play, which is say the Cold War. <laughs> exactly. Incognito. You have to
1: play with four. I don't know if I've ranted too much about Incognito lately, but it is one of these games that I have super fond memories of. I love Incognito. It is one of these games where there are, you are represented by four different shapes, and everyone's given a, a, a secret role at the beginning of the game, either Madame Zaza or, or Colonel Fiddlebottom or Agent X, and there's four different agents. So throughout the game, not only do you have to find out who's, you know, because it's one of these, you know, known information games where, like I said, there's four different aspects or four different sizes, and everyone's going to be one of them, but you don't know which one they are. So you sort of have to, through deduction, deductive reasoning, you have to figure out, okay, he's the short one, and if he's the short one, he might be this color, and then, you know, you sort of take that leap of faith, oh, he might be Madame Zaza, and then only two certain agents work together. So, and you're doing the, all of this secretly. It's like, okay, well, I figured out he's Agent X and I'm Madam Zaza and and it's a Tuesday at, at three o'clock. So you look down the little, actually, no, that's not how it's done. Everyone has a letter as well. So you have to figure out, you know, A, B or C or D, and you know, which. so you look at the letters and you see what's what mission you have. And you say you have to meet up with your with your agent at this space. So everyone's playing the game and then suddenly out of nowhere, you say, I win. (laughs) And then everyone just sort of stops. What do you mean? It's like, well, I'm the fat one and, and Julie's the tall one and she's agent X. And we met at, you know, this location and we just won the game. And
2: it's a fabulous game incognito. Yeah. And the logic puzzle only works when there are all four participants involved. That's right. right? Oh yeah. If you remove any one of them, then the entire matrix falls apart. It is four only. Yes. Now, I I was actually sitting down, and one of the reasons why I was inspired to think of this topic is... I have an awkward number of games in my collection that I, number one, really enjoy. And number two, are specifically good only with four. And this makes it awkward to bring to a game night. It makes it awkward to bring to any social event where you're not entirely positive... Not that game nights exist anymore. Entirely positive about the number of people that are going to be participating... Uh, and that is, uh, there's Moiter and Verater, both by Marcel Andre Castasalamarco. And Only good with four, really, but excellent, excellent card games. Cerebri The Inside World, which is still my favorite Mind Clash game. Mech Command RTS, we played that a couple times, but it's really hard to get back to the table because the rule systems are, yeah, everyone has to be on the same page because it's a real time game and it's a team game, so has to be exactly four. In the Shadow of the Emperor, exactly four. And it's it's depressing, really. I mean, the fact that there are this many that need the same number effectively guarantee that I'm not going to get exper- to experience many of them. Add to that, and this is a common problem with a lot of these, one of the great tragedies about specific player count games is not just that you need the right combination of people, but they have to have the right combination of tastes. Because if in your group of friends, you've always got four friends, but if any one of them strongly dislikes it, you're never going to play that game when it's just the three of you. So you're never going to play the game, period. And that's one of the reasons why I don't really get to play Cerebria, because Cerebria is a relatively dense game, and it's not for everybody. And so I've only played it once since we reviewed it, and that makes me deeply sad.
1: Another game that falls in the almost exact same category is Three Kingdom Redo, right? Because it's such a heavy game that requires exactly three players and everyone has to be into it and you know it's almost a reteach every time you do it right because rules heavy
2: three player only games are a lot less common which is unfortunate because i think you can do a lot of interesting things with a three player dynamic there was the end of the triumvirate which was a fascinating take on the kingmaker problem they said what if the kingmaker problem is the entire game it's not a problem that my job is to stop the next player in line. That is just my role. That is just what I have to do.
1: That one we played on, on TTS?
2: Tabletop no. What was that one we played? I've in? never
1: played the end of the Triumph Rout with you. What was the one we played on Tabletop? We've Simulator? played a lot of
2: games on Tabletop. Well, Simulator. the three-player
1: only card game that we played with Dr. Stallone. Oh,
2: that game. Trieste. It was called Trieste. Trieste. What, that's all you got to say? No, but I'm just just—I'm trying to... Can, can you give me a second,
1: to, <laughs> but You make me look so up what the game is called? You got nothing to say about Trieste? And then you and I played Trieste on, on Tabletop Simulator <laughs> with Dr. Stallone. It wasn't even Tabletop Simulator. It was Tabletopia. All right. And then you and I played... <laughs> You've forgotten the name already! Trieste, no. I'm, I'm, I, was, I was trying to give you a pause for editing. God, I'm trying to keep things together, Walker. All right. And then on Tabletopia... You, I, and Dr. Stallone played Trieste, which is another three-player-only game where it has much of the same what you just talked about, where it has this balance where you're not king-making. It's just your job to shut this particular part of the game down.
2: Absolutely. Uh, One player, one game that is limited to three players that I really think works well is Risk Mass Effect. I've talked about Risk Mass Effect a number of times over the course of the years. Yes, it's a themed version of Risk. Yes, I really like it. (laughs) I would think, I don't know why you're...
1: I I feel all of the themed Risk games are fantastic, in my opinion. Really? All of them? Almost. Well, all the ones that I've played. Oh, okay. I've really enjoyed them. Okay.
2: Well, the Risk Mass Effect game is strange in that it is a reskinned version of the Risk Star Wars Original Trilogy. (laughs) But for what it's worth, I actually think that it's more thematic than the Star Wars Original Trilogy one for a variety of reasons. Anyway, I I have a lot of fond memories of Risk Mass Effect, and uh, I think it is a very, very good Troops and a map game. And it's probably my my favorite Risk game. So, anyway. Now, another problem with fixed player count games is if they have any degree of asymmetry, you would better hope that all the roles are good to play. I'm reminded of this by virtue of Risk Mass Effect because all the roles are interesting and good to play. But one of the reasons, I, there are many reasons why I don't like the coin games, the counterinsurgency games by GMT. But one of the reasons is mo, all the ones that I've tried, whoever plays green is just less interesting than all the other roles. It's yeah. just sort of the, uh eh. Okay, I guess I get to play green while you guys get to go do interesting stuff. It's one of the, one of the failures of the coin series in general. It's, it's just, it's got the shoehorned formula. There will be four factions. The four factions are roughly corresponding to these arbitrary roles, and so whatever ahistorical conventions we have to do in order to shoehorn this theater into this formula we have, we're going to do, and somehow, miraculously, green always ends up kind of boring. Yeah, it's just like in the Star Wars one. Green is the, the
1: huts that you have to play, and they, they always get the shank.
2: Yes. And... The huts make less sense in in exactly. terms of risk than and, do, than exactly. does Cerberus. So. And, they're, and they're green. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in risk aspect, they're orange. But uh. now, worst of all, though, so so where where games are very flex, uh, inflexible in terms of player count is bad enough. But there's a category that I think is similar, but yet worse. And that is where there's a fixed number of characters that are going to appear in every game, and you then split them up amongst the players. Now, sometimes this results in effectively just the same, just a a very narrow player count where it works well. But sometimes it just doesn't divide well at all. This is one of the reasons why I don't like the Zombicide games. The scenarios are fixed there are going to be six characters in this game, which effectively means that you're st- like, cause you don't want to divide them up unevenly. That's just That's right. awkward and strange. And then you're left with often the problem, like in Zombicide, while well, playing one character, there's not really much to do with just one character. So then you probably only want to play with two. So with, kind of means it's a three-player game. Anyway, I could go on and on about how awkward this is. The same problem exists in Vanguard of War, which I think is kind of a cool tower defense game, but there's always it's always a fixed four-character limit. Uh, the, the worst instance of this, though, was a game called Mercs Recon, which had some interesting bits. I really liked how it did a lot of the things. It was a spin-off of the Mercs tabletop miniatures game, uh, but it was a co-op game. There are five characters. Oof. That is not good. That means the only way to play without divvying up characters unequally is to play solo or with five. Not awesome.
1: The only one that we didn't talk about that had on my list was Santorini. Oh, yeah. Another game, you know, that is definitely two-player only. Captain Sonar, you know, it says, you know, it has a varied player count, but it only plays best at
2: eight. Yes. The the same problem exists with a lot of team-based games. Uh, so there's uh, Space Cadets Dice Duel, which is my favorite of those kinds of uh, versions where everyone gets a, a post, and it's a very, very inflexible player count. You want the teams to be even. It, it it kind of works at four, but it mostly works at six or eight.
1: Yeah. Well, when I was looking through these games, another note I had at the very top, it just seems to be that there's this interesting power struggle I found is that with two-player games and every other game, sure. It's like when you're reading like rules, so usually they like, they have a whole either a whole separate rule set or a huge section. If you're only going to play this two players, then you got to do this. And then the same thing goes when they try to force two player games into multiple player games. And, you know, it's this weird, you know, back and forth between these two, you know,
2: separate genres. I thought it was interesting. Absolutely. But to sum up, let me just emphasize the two reasons why I find very specific player count games awkward. And it's not just that I don't, don't get to play them enough. That's part of it. But to me, It highlights the tension between gaming as a social experience and as a systems experience, right? I want to play this game because I really like the rules, I like the setting, or I like the systems, whatever. And so normally, if a game is flexible, like Raw is, like El Grande is, even Senji is, or Tigris and Euphrates, again, all these games are reputed to be inflexible, but I think they're more flexible than people say they are. I can just bring the game, and some number of people will be there, and there's some flexibility in the context of either a social gathering or whatever. But if I want to play a game of Cerebria, I am I have to start headhunting for specific numbers of people, and this is awkward because it kind of, it demonstrates, it brings to the fore, it brings ready to hand, the notion that this social experience is being subjugated to this arbitrary rules structure. Now, maybe always when gaming, that's actually what's happening, and we're just fooling ourselves, but it's awkward, and it makes me feel bad. And as a corollary of that, as a furtherance of that, it... As a corollary to that, it also highlights the instrumental nature of a lot of relationships. I'm not friends with you because you're my friend. I'm friends with you because you're a warm body. You're <laughs> someone I can call on when I need to pad my numbers that's for right. a specific game. See that seat you're in? You filled it. Good job. <laughs> exactly. You, you've accomplished your role. Now, this is uh, to contrast a game that's, you know, marvelously flexible. But one of the great things, uh, honestly, just as a, a, a sort of... a uh, Coda to all this. One of the great things about playing planning a game of Mega Civ is it's kind of like throwing stuff at the wall. You just need enough to stick. I remember the first time we played Mega Civ, two people showed up that hadn't RSVP'd. They're like, oh hey, I'm here. And it's like, I didn't hear from you, but guess what? We got room. Welcome. <laughs> yeah. Two other people could have bailed, five other people could have bailed, we would have been fine. And that flexibility is great. <laughs> so I wish more, more games were that flexible, honestly. <laughs> 5 to 18 there we go that's the number we need <laughs> that's why can't every game scale that way so, thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at thegamesyoulike. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. This is a multiple five episode, but we're going to, want to talk about the Patreon because we talked a lot about it last week. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. And just remember, we are but brief flames that exist on this world,
1: but for a mere flicker and then are extinguished forever.
2: Damn, Walker. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Biggin. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at WhatDoesItEat.com. You can reach us by email at SoVeryWrongAboutGames at gmail.com or on Twitter at SoWrongGames. Thanks very much. See you next time and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.